The year was 1948, a very significant year in world history. Uh, Israel became a nation that year, kind of a big world event. It was the first meeting of the World Health Organization in Geneva, Switzerland, another big uh, world event. The United Nations signed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, something that we still talk about today. Warner Brothers released its first picture film in color. What's a film? I don't know. What's a film? But anyway, uh, they used to put movies on film. So uh, it was in color, and all kinds of innovations were happening in post-World War II. But in that time, I'm sure God was involved in a lot of those things, but in that time, there was uh, something that was on God's mind, something that was on God's heart. A small group of islands, the northwest coast of Scotland, called the Hebrides Islands. We have a picture behind us, the Hebrides Islands. This beautiful, just little pastoral scene, this kind of farming and fishing islands, some with only a couple hundred people each living on them. And the Hebrides Islands in 1948 began a five to six year period that the locals would describe as God stepping down from heaven. As God stepping down from heaven. Wow. So what's, what's that look like? Well, this is describing what we see in history today being called the revival in the Hebrides. A time where God swept through a very unlikely place, sparsely populated place, a seemingly insignificant place, where he moved with his spirit with such grandeur that lives were changed and nations were impacted even to this day. I want to read you some quotes from the Hebrides revival. Three young women were praying in a barn. Okay, so not a successful prayer meeting by the world's standards, okay? Suddenly, there came a sound from heaven. The whole community became saturated with God. Men and women were swept into the kingdom. We had not organized. We had no publicity program. But heaven's messengers moved in the midst of the people. And in a matter of hours, churches became crowded as scores of people were swept into the kingdom of God. On another island, a portion of Psalm 24 was read. We prayed, are our hands clean? Are our hearts pure? We got no further. At that moment, there came a realization of God, an awareness of his presence that brought us from the sphere of the ordinary into the sphere of the extraordinary. Fascinating statements about this time of revival, this time of God's spirit awakening and touching these different islands. I've been on a little journey the last few weeks of studying actually this time period in history, the Hebrides revival, as we're in a series at this church on revival. And as I've been praying about it, um, it was kind of a fascinating God coincidence. I find a lot of people in life, God will speak to them in different ways. Moses had a burning book. God will often bring me a burning, burning bush. God will often bring me a burning book. Someone will oftentimes bring me a book that's very significant into my life. I love to read, so I think God does, does that. I was in Waco, Texas this weekend. I was already studying this Hebrides revival. I was asking God, what, what, what's this all about? Why are you drawing me into this? And one of my mentors, a Scottish guy named Joe Ewan, who's on our board, brought me this book, The Price and the Power of Revival by Duncan Campbell, the leader of this revival in the Hebrides. And honestly, I, you know, I put it in my backpack and got on my Southwest flight back to San Diego, and I read this book on the plane. I was so overcome by the Holy Spirit. 
on the plane ride. The stewardess just kept bringing me water. I don't think she knew what to do with me. <laughs> I got like four or five little cups of water. <laughs> you know, they typically bring one or two from San Diego to, to Texas. And I think she could tell, like, this guy is kind of stirred up about something. So um, I was just visibly just kind of overcome. And God has been using this revival, studying this revival, to redefine to me what revival is. Revival is not simply better church meetings. Revival is not more church engagement, like more people in small groups or whatever. Revival is not more evangelism. Revival is not more anointed worship or more creative worship. All those things are evidences of revival, but they are not revival. Throughout history, we've seen many different manifestations of what a theologian would call revival, of a moving of the spirit of God. And when a true revival comes, it's unmistakable. It's God stepping down from heaven. I like how Duncan Campbell, who was the one who wrote and preached during this Hebrides revival, defined revival. He defined it this way. Revival is a community saturated with God. Revival is a community saturated with the awareness of God. This is what was going on in the revival of the Hebrides. One story, there was a small island of about 400 people that did not have a church at it. And there was one Christian that we know of that lived there, and he was the jailer. And so being a small island of 400 people on the island, there were eight people in his little jail. And so this was this guy's world. He showed up at the jail and slept there at night and basically kept these people locked up. And one night he was praying, and the Holy Spirit visited the jail. All of the jailers, all eight of them, came to Jesus. They were touched by the Spirit of God. But the more interesting thing is what happened next. People in the community could feel the shift. They could feel that something was going on. So all over this little island, people started showing up to the jail for a church service. Revival is a community saturated with the awareness of God. You can actually go on YouTube and uh, watch different stories of the people that uh, were part of this revival and God transforming their world and uh, they'll, they'll often describe this story. We would wake up in the middle of the night. Maybe this has happened to you before. You, you have that feeling when you're asleep and you kind of wake up, you can sense someone staring at you. It's kind of freaks you out. You know? um, sometimes in my house, it's the dog. You know? um, so they had that feeling in the middle of the night, waking up that someone was staring at them and the presence of the Lord Jesus would be in the room and they'd get on their knees and give their life to God. Revival is a community saturated with God. Many of the people that came to the Lord during this time of revival, I think about 75% of them, it said, didn't even happen in a church service because God was so present in the life of the community. And so one of these islands that this revival started on was called the Lewis, uh, Isle of Lewis. And I looked up that word Lewis and I was studying that island and it comes from a Nordic word that means uh, house of songs, basically. And I thought about that idea of a house, that God's church being a house, a house of songs, a house. And, and I thought, I think this is what God would say to us this week. We're called to build a house of revival. So today I want to speak to you from the subject, building the house of revival, building the house of revival. Would you just open your hands with me while we pray? God, we just pray over this morning. I say, come Holy Spirit, would you come here in this place, teach and equip and encourage us on this journey of studying revival of your workings amongst men. In Jesus' name, amen. Building a house of revival. Well, for the last few years, I've been in the process of trying 
to renovate a house. Seven and a half years ago, my wife and I moved in to a fixer-upper here in San Diego, and it was a miracle that we even had the money for the down payment. And here's what I've seen with fixer-uppers. There's a few different categories. There's kind of the, the houses that you can basically live in, but they just need some cosmetic updates. You know what I mean? They need some new paints, maybe some new fixtures on the cabinetry, a new couch, a new rug, and you're good to go, right? So that's one level of renovation of a house. And then we have the middle level, which is kind of the house flip, right? The, the guts and bones of the house are kind of okay, but we need some new appliances, maybe some new windows. We're just going to modernize the house a little bit. And then we have the third level of renovation, which, of course, is the one that I chose, the total gut job. You know, um, I'm pretty sure at Halloween, this house I moved in would be a haunted house if I hadn't renovated it because it was uh, totally, you know, just uninhabitable. I mean, it, it, it had nothing going for it. You could not have lived in it if I had not moved in and redone everything in the house. Well, in my optimism, the night we moved in, I told my wife we'd be done in three years. So seven and a half years later, still got that gift of faith. And uh, we're actually, we're actually, oh, thank you, Philip. We're actually almost done. But uh, anyway, <laughs> I've been saying that for a few years too. <laughs> but, um, but it's been a journey of building a house. Well, God's had us on a journey of building a house of revival. And today we're going to look at, first of all, why? Why do we even need revival? Like, why can't we just do church as usual? Why? How? How does God bring seasons of revival into the life of his church? How does that happen? Number three, what? Okay, so what is a revival? So if we want this revival, if we know God is bringing it, what is it? What's the plan? And how do we walk in that? In this Revive Us series, we've been studying the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra depicts an Old Testament revival during the time of the rebuilding of the second temple in Jerusalem. Last week, Robert spoke on the enemies of revival, on things in our life that keep us from walking and all that God has for us. And he ended on this verse, Ezra chapter 4, verse 24. This is where we're going to start our message today. Ezra chapter 4, verse 24. I've got it behind me. You can read along. Thus, the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Say standstill. Another word for standstill might be stuck. Maybe you found yourself stuck in some different times in your life. Maybe in a financial goal, career, education. Maybe it's a relationship. You didn't know, do I keep investing in this relationship? Do I move on? Things are stuck. Maybe a project at work, you feel stuck. That feeling of stuck is a really overwhelming feeling. Um, we've been stuck a few times as we've tried to renovate this house. Uh, we've had to believe for some finances. My cat has caused us to get stuck twice in the middle of this renovation. The first time, uh, we were doing some work in our kitchen, put a hole in the wall, moved some cabinets around, and then, you know, put the, put the wall back together. And later that night, it's about time for Chicken the cat to get her food. And um, my wife's like, where's, where's Chicken? She's very conscientious of Chicken's presence at all times. I am not. And, and I said, I don't know. Maybe she's in the wall. It was just a joke, really. And about an hour later, meow, the cat is in the wall, pause the project, <laughs> get out the hammer, we rescued the cat. So here's what I've learned. God oftentimes works in cycles. So if you don't learn the lesson the first time, he'll let you learn it again in a different way. So about a year ago, we were, we were doing um, some work in another room, and we had to get up in the attic. 
the contractor's coming at 7.30 the next morning. And he's putting all the drywall up. Like, we can't delay the guy. There's a guy that's waiting on him. You know what I mean. This is a whole chain of events. And I start to hear something in the attic. And the cat is, like, in a corner of the attic under some insulation and will not leave. We have gotten sardines. We have used a laser pointer. We have played cat noises on YouTube. We have prayed. Nothing is happening. So it is literally like Mission Impossible. I am on my hands and knees, you know, going on these rafters, my, uh, you know, my legs hanging down, rescuing the cat. We got unstuck. I want you to know that. That emotion, feeling stuck, psychologists um, describe it as burnout. What's burnout? Burnout isn't just when you have a lot going on and you're physically tired, although that's legit. That's part of life. But psychologists describe burnout as this, when you've been working on the same problem too long with no results. That's burnout. That's the overwhelming feeling of being stuck. Why? Do we need revival? Well, we see in Ezra chapter 4, sometimes the work of God gets stuck. Sometimes the purposes of God get stuck in a generation, and we need revival. We need a spiritual breakthrough. I'm so thankful for the work of God in this church. God's doing so much. This is not specifically a comment on this church, but let me make a broader statement for a minute. The church in the United States of America is stuck. We've just now passed the first generation where now there are more non-Christians than Christians in our society. So Christians are now, what they're saying, living in exile. We have to remember, this country is not our country. We are citizens of heaven. And we have to figure out how to live in a new society that's secular and pagan and most people are not following Jesus. And so sociologists have started to study, well, what's happening to the people that are being raised in the church? And right now, I'm not blaming a politician. Right now, I'm not blaming some other group of people. I'm not blaming the media. I'm talking about these are people who are raised in the church. How are they doing today? Are we doing our job or are we stuck? And they studied young adults that have been raised in the church and are trying to understand the Barna group is a statistical analysis group. Are they still walking with God? And they divided young adults who had been raised in the church in four categories. First category was this, prodigals. These are people that although they are raised in the church, now they would say they're an ex-Christian. They don't attend church. They don't believe in God. They aren't following God. They have found some other form of spirituality that meets their needs, and they have moved on from Jesus. So out of Children that are raised in church over the last 20 years and now become young adults, 22% of them are prodigals. Nomads. So they would say that 30% of those who are raised in a Christian environment today have become nomads. That means they have not attended a Christian expression in over six months, and their beliefs would not line up with the Bible. So that's 52% right there. 22 plus 30. 38% of young adults, they would say today, are habitual churchgoers. So they attend church once a month, but basically they're just warming a seat. When you get into their soul and ask them really hard questions about life and faith and doubt and working it out, they don't have a biblical worldview. They aren't interested in following Jesus. It's a cultural thing. 10%, now, 
This can kind of depress you, but listen, God has always used a small remnant of people. I'm excited about 10%. But 10%, they say today in exile in America, of those who are raised in church are resilient disciples. People who attend church monthly, um, trust firmly in the authority of the Bible, at least monthly, are committed to Jesus personally and affirm he was crucified and raised from the dead. And this is the big one. Express desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. Now, I'm excited about that 10%. Think of all the time, money, discipleship, prayer that has gone into this whole chart, and we only have 10% of people that are resilient disciples. We need revival, okay? Here's the good news. When you look at the next chart, this is the chart that they use to say, okay, what is causing people that are raised in a Christian environment to become a resilient disciple? This is awesome. You look at the next chart and the next column, what they found was when young adults are raised in a church and actually encounter the person of Jesus, they almost always become a resilient disciple. So this is what happens. Revival begets revival. Life begets life. I was so encouraged on Thursday, one of our staff members came in and said, one of my kids was at our prayer meeting on Wednesday night. And, you know, he was just kind of hanging out and doing his thing while we were all praying. But Thursday morning, he came to me and he said this, Dad, I want you to know, last night, I experienced God. Isn't that awesome? An experience with God is what we need. A revival is what we need to produce resilient disciples in our day. So we need revival. Amen? All right. So how does that happen? Well, Ezra 4.24, this is when the work of God was at a standstill. The next verse after that is Ezra 5.1. This is important for you to know. Between Ezra 4.24 and Ezra 5.1, there's a 15-year gap. The work of God had been stuck for 15 years. So little Johnny, who was three when they started building the temple, is now ready to graduate from high school and go to Yeshiva University, okay? Like a whole generation has grown up. The 50-year-old stonecutter or whatever his job was, who was you know, helping out build the temple, he's dead now. The, the plans for the temple, they've probably been lost. Like, I can't hold on to papers for 15 years. I don't know about you guys. That's why I have Evernote, okay? So, I mean, but 15 years later, talk about burnout, God revives the work. How does God revive his people? He always sends a messenger with a promise. Let's look at Ezra 5, verse 1. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So God sends prophets to his people with messages of hope to strengthen them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheatel, and Joshua, son of Jozadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. God wants to release supernatural encouragement into the church and reignite his promises so people will continue to contend for revival. This is what we see happen in Ezra 5.2. The prophets of God were with them, supporting them. I looked up that word support. It's an Aramaic word, actually. And the Jewish equivalent means this, to comfort and to strengthen. Reminds me a lot of this verse in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. 
when we're stuck, God will bring a messenger of hope into our life. He will bring a prophetic word into our life to help us continue the journey and to bring fresh revival. So if you're new to this conversation, a little background. This is, I'm going to go a lot of background here. Jesus was God in human form. (laughs) And he came to earth 2,000 years ago. And while he was alive, he performed many miracles, and he fulfilled thousands of prophecies about himself, including the way he would die. He died on a cross for the sins of all mankind as a perfect sacrifice. He descended to the dead. Then he rose from the dead to show he was the way to eternal life. Shortly thereafter, after teaching his disciples, he ascended to heaven. At that time, he said this, I'm going to heaven, but I'm going to send someone else. I'm going to send someone else to you who's going to comfort you, who's going to encourage you, who's going to be your advocate. That person is going to be the Holy Spirit. And so then Jesus went to heaven, and he sent his Holy Spirit to the disciples. And so now, when the Holy Spirit speaks to us as a church and encourages us, and through one another, we call that prophecy. So when I say prophecy, I'm not talking about Nostradamus. (laughs) I'm not talking about the tabloid papers at the supermarket. I don't know, I go to Trader Joe's, so they don't have tabloids. Maybe they have tabloids where you go to the supermarket. I'm not talking about, you know, Instagram has had a huge uh, influx now of, of new age thought and tarot cards and horoscopes and all that. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about encouragement from God to keep you going. Amen? So, so what did Haggai, of course, in line with Scripture, so what did Haggai say? What did he say to strengthen God's people? What's awesome is in the Old Testament, we have the book of Haggai. It's right there. There's his prophecy. He wrote it down. And we have it in Haggai 1, verse 13. I'm just going to read a portion of it. I just want you to give a sense for how God was speaking to them. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) Some people here today that probably don't even know why you're at church, but you need to know that God is with you. Sometimes it's the very thing that keeps us from burnout. (laughs) That's the very thing that keeps us going, a fresh promise from God that he is with us. So God speaks promises to us, and then we have a journey. And this is the journey of how prayer interacts with revival, with outpourings of God's spirit. So I want to talk for a minute about prayer and revival and potentially step on some toes. I'm going to step out here so you can know I'm stepping on your toes. Okay. In California, we have a democracy. So the way California works is if 51% of the people vote on something, we can pass a prop in the state legislature, right? Heaven is not a democracy. God is not waiting for 51% of Christians to start praying for revival before he brings revival. Heaven is not a democracy. Okay. In the United States of America, we have a republic. So the way a republic works is you elect and appoint special people to go to the government for you and do the work. Special people, people like pastors, right? But God's not waiting on a special person. He's not waiting on a pastor, on an apostle, on a prophet, on some anointed person to pray, on just one celebrity to get saved. Heaven is not a republic. Some people, sadly, view heaven as a dictatorship. God's just kind of up there, doing his own thing. Inshallah, maybe God wills. 
Heaven's not a dictatorship. Praise God. Heaven is a kingdom. Heaven is a kingdom. And when a king decrees a thing, so it is. Heaven is a kingdom. I'm so glad we serve a benevolent, a wise, and a listening king who listens to the cry of his people. You know, a king can change his entire direction based on an audience of one person. Heaven is not a democracy. Heaven is not a republic. Heaven is a kingdom. And when a king wills something, so it is. I don't know what's going on with this Kanye Sunday service thing, but let me tell you, there's something going on where the king is allowing some people that we wouldn't think are in the kingdom into his back door. I don't know if you watched the wedding of uh, Harry and Prince Harry and Meghan in England. I watched it. Um, it's a big deal. All right, I watched it. I'm a grown man. I can watch what I want. All right. So, you know what I saw in that church service where they anointed those people? There were some people in that church service that shouldn't have been at church by my standards. Like, there were some messed up celebrities there, right? But heaven's a kingdom. When a king invites somebody, they come. When, when, when Meghan and Harry drove down the street and all the royal standards and the flags and everyone was celebrating them, the whole society came out to celebrate them and look at them. It didn't matter if they were rich or poor. It didn't matter if they agreed with whatever political party it was. They were there to celebrate the kingdom. Heaven's a kingdom. And when a king decrees something, so it is. And our king has decreed, I will pour water on thirsty ground. I will rend the heavens and come down. I will bring revival. Heaven is a kingdom. And we serve a king that keeps his covenants. And so when we come to our king to pray for revival, Lord, if it's your will, no way. He already spoke his will. God, you're a covenant-keeping God, and I come to you in confidence right now on the basis of your goodness and your nature and not my own. Keep your covenants and send revival. That is how we pray the promises of God for revival. This week, I was burnt out on some stuff. Went to a gathering of some friends and... Um, I can show you in my Evernote, I wrote it down, but I have five different people that came up to me within a 10-minute period and gave me the exact same word from God. God will bring messages into our life for us to partner with, to call out for a fresh season of revival. So there's portions of this message that are for different types of people, right? This, this thing on praying revival, I'm trying to speak to those that are really contending for God to do something in our city and just encourage you a bit and say, if God's promised it, let's bank our lives on it. Let's believe for revival, amen? And, and if you're new to this whole discussion, I just wanna encourage you, God is giving us promises. Just jump into the journey and let's begin to pray for revival. How? God gives us promises, okay? So what now, okay? Because... There's been people that have been praying for revival for a lot of years. There's been people that have been preaching God's word for a lot of years. Why don't, what's going on? Where's the revival? Well, we need to know God's plan for revival if we're going to see revival. 
This is what happens in, in the Old Testament in Ezra. They start building the temple, and it creates this whole cascade of events where they have to go find a building permit. Does that sound like San Diego to you? All right. Ezra chapter 6, they're looking all over Babylon for the building permit for the temple. King Darius issued an order. They searched the archives stored in the treasury of Babylon. I mean, this is ridiculous. The bureaucracy to look for this building permit. They go all the way back to Iraq. They walk there. Okay, I'm speaking prophetically here. Sometimes we need to go back to the original plan for revival. You know, we planted this church. I really wanted God to do something new. I don't want God to do something new anymore. I want God to do something old. We have the plan for revival in Acts chapter 2. I just want to read it for you. This is a community that was saturated in the awareness of God. I don't have the slides, so just listen along. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And awe came on every soul Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those that were being saved. This is the plan for revival that God has given us, the book of Acts. So I've been looking at this. I've been looking at this Hebrides revival. I've been praying into this. You know, God, what is, what is the plan for revival? And I was reminded by a conversation I had with a mentor several years ago who said this to me. He said there's a difference between revivalism and biblical revival. Okay, so I'm defining that term for you. Revivalism, what do I mean by that? By revivalism, I bring man's attempts for God to do something in their city and in their life. That's revivalism. Good-hearted, but revivalism would be man's attempts for God to move and change their society. Biblical revival would be a sovereign outpouring of the Spirit of God. So I want to separate that for us a little bit. I have a chart. I preached this at our staff retreat couple months ago, and our staff said, you've got to preach this to the church. So if you don't like it, blame the staff, okay? They're all in the front row. Okay, so here we go. I want to talk for a minute about God's plan for revival, as we see in Acts chapter 2, and how that contrasts sometimes with our own plans. So on the far corner here, I have some elements of the Christian life. In the middle, I have what I would say would fall in revivalism. And on the, over this corner here, biblical revival. Okay, so let me go through a few of these here transformation. Man, we want people to be transformed by Jesus. Amen. That's part of the purpose statement of this church, transforming lives. But sometimes when we start to do things in our own strength, we can describe transformation as one event. What I mean by that is I got zapped by God and then everything was different. Listen, I've gotten zapped by God a ton of times and I'm still being transformed, right? <laughs> so absolutely, God touches us. There are events that are powerful in our lives. Come to Freedom Day. It will be a powerful event. You will be delivered of some things in your life. But that is only going to start a process of freedom in your life that you have to walk out. Right? Remember, the, the book of Acts encompasses about a 60-year period. So we're just reading the highlight reel. There was a lot of boring days in there of the daily Bible reading. You know what I'm saying? 
right? Okay, encounters with God. Man, we want people to encounter God. What's an encounter? An event, especially one that is unexpected or unplanned. I, my life has been changed and touched by encounters with God. But when we fall into revivalism, because we so want God to change people, we can make just having an encounter with God the end goal. And an encounter with God is nothing but an invitation to continue to walk with God. Think about the Apostle Paul. He had a great encounter with God. He was blinded. Does anyone want to be blinded at church today? I don't think so. Okay. He was blinded. Then a guy prayed for him. Scales fell off of his eye. What an encounter with God. Did you know that after that, he went into the desert for 11 years to meet with Jesus? (laughs) That encounter with God began an invitation into his life of walking with God and being transformed. Okay, you're starting to understand there's a difference between kind of how we want it to happen and maybe how God would have it happen in our community and in our city. There's a contrast here. Family, revivalism is all about meetings. So what happens is, is family life becomes a distraction. Listen, I've got a bunch of kids. They're totally distracting, but I love them, okay? But let me tell you something, okay? Kids aren't going to disturb the glory, right? (laughs) Thank you, right? Got a hallelujah. It's getting real in here. All right. Listen, in biblical revival, family is the foundation for everything that God does. That's how we build resilient disciples, by bringing our kids along for the next generation. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, it's exhausting. Welcome to the human race. We got to do it anyway. All right. Disciplines. What I mean by that, spiritual disciplines, spending time with God, prayer, daily prayer, things like that. Again, revivalism is all about creating meetings to to make God do things. So in revivalism, spiritual disciplines can get dull. It's like, why would I read the Bible when I can listen to this great teacher on YouTube every morning? Ooh. Right? Why, Why would I have my own intimacy with God when I can just go from conference to conference or events or events? I love events. I was at one this week. But listen, biblical revival, it says they were devoted It was a daily devotion to walking with God, right? Well, I don't remember what I read in the Bible every morning. Listen, I don't remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday, but it doesn't mean it didn't keep me alive, okay? All right, phenomena. In every biblical revival, there has been supernatural phenomena. We've seen that happen at this church. What do I mean by that? The healing of the sick, miracles, unusual miracles. I was on a trip in the Middle East. We saw unusual miracles. hundred people came to the Lord. It was amazing. Um, you know, other unexplainable things, people being delivered from the influence of the enemy. But in revivalism, what happens, because those things are so intoxicating and exciting, we can begin to exalt phenomena. But when we do that, it's like people who are new to the faith and new to the church, they don't know what to do with that. They're kind of like, what do you mean God still heals today? There's a God, and he answers prayer. And what's prayer, by the way? I mean, it's just like so confusing. Biblical revival, supernatural phenomena is explained. Look at Acts chapter 2, the ultimate phenomena. They're praying in the upper room. Tongues of fire. People are speaking in other languages. A wind comes and fills the church. What does Peter do? Does he step back and say, I don't want to quench the Holy Spirit? No. As a leader, he steps in and says, excuse me, everybody. Uh, nobody's drunk here, as you might think. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. I just want to inform you that this is actually what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. We're going to do a little Bible study right now and read Joel chapter 2. And he reads through Joel chapter 2. But what happens? 3,000 people come to the Lord after that explanation. It was an anointed explanation. 
This is how we have a healthy spirit-empowered church. Finances. Revivalism oftentimes can fall into legalism in the pet doctrines. So we can fall into the prosperity gospel. You've heard that term before. Or maybe more of a poverty mentality, believing that finances are evil or bad. In biblical revival, finances aren't good or bad. They're just utilized for God's kingdom. Like, I like what John Wesley said. Earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. That's my sermon on finances. Okay, next slide. Okay. Okay, I only have time to cover a few more of these. Unwanted emotions. Man, there are unwanted emotions in life that slow us down. Depression, anxiety, addictive tendencies. And it can be easy to get legalistic and start to view some of those things as sinful. But in biblical revival, we understand those things actually in themselves, of course, we all have desires to sin in different ways, but in themselves, those things aren't sinful. They're just soulful. They're just part of the journey of getting free. There's going to be unwanted emotions that we have to deal with because we're fragile and broken people. The, the guy who wrote the theological book on revival, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you could go read it if you were in a seminary. You asked, what do I read on revival? That's what they would give you. You know what his other book is on? Spiritual depression. Because so many people who have contended for revival have had to work through those unwanted emotions. Guys, tell you, if you deal with that, you're in good company. Like, you don't need to feel ashamed or ostracized or count yourself out. It's part of the journey of getting free, right? Yeah. Man, I, I love sharing Jesus with people. You know, the word we use is evangelism in the church. But so much evangelism can be like a lot of pressure. You know what I mean? We're trying to get a, a response out of people. You know what it says in the book of Acts? That they were enjoying the favor of all the people. And then God added to their number daily those that were being saved. Listen, I want to tell a lot of people about Jesus, but I want to do it where I have favor. You know where a lot of people's journey of finding Jesus starts? Trusting and knowing a Christian. It's a great place to start building favor. Ultimately, the, the, the dichotomy I'm trying to make is at the bottom. When we can fall into revivalism, we can start to believe this lie. It's our job as the church, to start a revival. It's not our job. I'm looking around this room. There's a lot of godly people in this room. There's a lot of people that pray a lot. There's a lot of people that know a lot about the Bible. There's some amazing leaders in this room. But none of us have the ability to bring a revival. All we can do is build a house. We can say, God, this is our house. Will you fill it with your spirit? God, will you revive us again? Lord, do it in our time. All we can do is build a container for revival. Let's stand together. Sunday night, I was with our prophetic community, which is just a group of people that walk in that gift of prophecy at the church, as I talked about earlier. We had about a 30-minute discussion, and I've summarized that into what I believe is a word for our church today. And I believe this is the word that God would speak to you on the journey of believing for revival. You can just open your hands and receive this word. God is calling all people's church to repentance. 
Now that can be a scary word, so let me define it. This season of repentance is not to repent of sin, although God wants to deal with sin. This season of repentance is not an occasion to mourn, although some of us will be grieved. This season of repentance is a season of trading in our strength for God's strength. This season of repentance is a season of choosing faith in Jesus's words over our own dead works. This season of repentance is a time to trade in our own blessings for the ultimate blessing of revival and our own comfort for the comfort of the lost. This season of repentance is a time to prepare for the joyful coming of our King. Just open your hands with me and say this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just let that sit for a minute. 